This podcast does not provide medical advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast where we talk about serious illness, dying, death, and bereavement. I'm Marianne Matzo, a nurse practitioner, and I use my 43 years of nursing experience to help you understand what happens at the end of life. And I'm Charlie Navarrete, an actor in New York City, here to ask questions that might pop into your head as you're listening. If they pop in later, send them to our website. Marianne and I believe the more you know when you are not under pressure or unconscious, the better prepared you are to make difficult decisions about your end-of-life choices. So, please relax, get yourself something nourishing to eat and drink, or just get yourself some cake. I don't care. And thank you for spending the next hour with Charlie and me. In the first half, we have our recipe of the week. In the second half, Charlie Mm -hmm. is going to do a report about photography of people who have died or dead photography or post-mortem photography photography of dead people. Post-mortem photography that sounds so much more sophisticated. And in our third, Mm. yeah, and in our third half, um, I'm going to read to you an obituary that I found to be absolutely wonderful. So, We'll start with food. The road to your next funeral luncheon is paved with strawberry pretzel Mm -hmm, salad. mm -hmm. If you've ever had it, you know. If you haven't, well, bless your little heart. This dish is an example of how us Northerners transplanted to the South love to make salads out of just about anything, and especially things we can suspend in jello. These days, the Jell-O website calls this dish strawberry pretzel dessert bars. Oh, talk about sophisticated. Perhaps in an effort to destigmatize it, but we know better. So, what is a strawberry pretzel salad? For the uninitiated, this is a non-salad salad, which in my book is like the greatest salad ever. It's a light dessert that resembles a cheesecake with a sweet salty crust made from pretzels, butter, and brown sugar, and a fruit topping. Um, Farmer's Almanac says that for many, this dish is a staple at the holiday dinner table that can also be found at potlucks and funerals all throughout the year. Well, where did it come from? There's many sources, but Primarily, it's the 1963 cookbook, The Joys of Jell-O. Not to be confused with the book, The Joys of Sex, but that's a whole other podcast. Um, This small book came as a paperback or spiral bound and included gelatin recipes, ways to order molds, and Jell-O advertisements. Now, you think, well, is a book from 1963 still around? Well, you know... You know what I say what? about Amazon. So we have a link in our show notes that if you want to buy it, you can I go see. there and get it. Um, before the invention of prepackaged gelatin, um, this you know kind of wonderful thing was only available to the Ooh. upper class. This was because they had a home chef who had to go through an arduous process of boiling calf's feet for hours. And I don't know how they got those calves to stand yeah, still really. to get their It'd feet boiled, but 
I'm sure that's mm-hmm. another mm-hmm. podcast too. And being sure to skim the scum and the fat that surfaced. Then that was strained through a special jelly bag. They added flavorings and they packed it into a mold and chilled it on ice until it was set. With all that fuss involved, only with a staff of servants would you venture to serve something like this at a social function. But pre-made gelatin was invented in 1845 by Peter Cooper of New York. Oddly, he was also the inventor of Tom Thumb. The little guy? Not the guy oh, in not the, the, not the little guy. No, no, no. The right. first, right. not the little guy, the first steam oh. locomotive. Cooper was apparently better at inventing than marketing, so it went nowhere. It wasn't until Pearl White of Leroy, New York, I don't even know where Leroy, New York is, invented flavored powdered gelatin called Jell-O, J-E-L-L-O, that people took notice. He sold the formula to Orator Woodward in 1899 for Four hundred and fifty dollars. So, in today's uh, money, that would be a billion. About actually, actually about about fifteen thousand. How did you figure that? I wrote it down. To be very honest with you. Oh, the yes, secrets. Yes. Okay. Um, so Woodward marketed the product with recipe books and magazine ads, and we have the jello we know today. Strawberry pretzel salad is not a salad at all, but an iconic layered dessert where there's this marriage of salt, sweet, sweet, creamy, and crunchy. Just that perfect marriage I've always mm-hmm. looked for. It is a must at funerals, but you'll get rave reviews any time of the year. So, thank you for this recipe and additional resources for this program. Please go to our webpage. We hope you will follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Remember to rate and review this podcast. As a licensed nonprofit organization, we depend on your kindness, gentle listeners, and always appreciate your donations, which are tax deductible. Please go to our Mm -hmm. webpage to donate in support of our work. I forgot the title. (laughs) Please go. (laughs) Jesus Lord. Oh, brother. All right. Let me. This is My Favorite Murder, starring. <laughs> Evan and Costello. Okay. So, what's the name of our podcast, Charles? So, we are at www.everyonedies.org. That's every, the number one, dies.org. In our second half, yours truly who is dedicated to truth, justice, normalizing death, and martinis with top-shelf gin, was asked to write about death photography, also known as post-mortem photography, which is photographing a loved one after their death. My first thought, do I have enough olives? Well, (laughs) according to Dr. Stanley Burns, post-mortem photography is the taking of a photograph of a deceased loved one and was a normal part of American and European culture in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Dr. Burns' work has played a large role in normalizing post-mortem photography. You'll find a link to his post-mortem and medical photos in our show notes. Commissioned by grieving families, post-mortem photographs not only helped in the grieving process, 
but also represented the only visual remembrance of the deceased. They were among a family's most precious possessions. Small photographs of the dead were often carried in lockets or pockets. The earliest postmortem photos were often close-ups of the face or full body, at times depicted to appear lifelike or napping. Children were often positioned in a crib, posed with a favorite toy or with a family member, most often the mother. Later photographs depicted the subject in a coffin. Flowers like forget-me-nots and calla lilies were common in postmortem photography. In Victorian England, it was common for families to have lots of children. Unfortunately, it was also common for children to die before their fifth birthday. Photographs taken of dead loved ones became a way of commemorating them and blunting the sharpness of grief. Death photos called mirrors with memories. People usually died in their homes, surrounded by family and friends, where the corpse stayed until buried. Viewing and touching the corpse was commonplace to confirm identity and to ensure that the person was indeed dead. Children viewing the dead was part of everyday life. In poor homes, kids would share the room, even the bed with a dying sister or brother. Look at the BBC article in our reference list, which shows photos that are both unsettling and moving. Families pose with the dead, and dead infants appear asleep. On some occasions, eyes would be painted onto the photograph after it was developed to make the deceased more lifelike. In the mid-1800s, Photography was becoming increasingly popular and affordable, leading to photographic portraitures as a type of memento mori, reminding the living that we all must die. One photo shows twins, one alive, the other dead, surrounded by flowers. Another has a little girl arranged upright as if she had dropped off to sleep while playing with her dolls. Photos include two girls posed with their dead mother, a Victorian father mourning his baby, an entire household, including the cat, gathered round a dead child on the floor who was posed as if sleeping. Dead portraitures became increasingly popular. It's helpful to understand that for most people, they only had one photo taken of them in their life, and for many, that was when they were dead. Photographs were taken using tintype methods, which was printing the photo on tin. We have a good video about this in our resource list. It was a long process, and in order to get a clear picture, you had to sit still for 45 seconds. Try that. It's hard. Many pictures turned out blurry. Yeah. But when you look at group pictures, including a corpse, the clearest picture was of the deceased, as they could obviously stay still for 45 seconds. Easy peasy. The death of a loved one was often the trigger to have a family portrait. It was often the first time families thought of having a photograph taken, and it was the last chance to have a permanent likeness of a loved one. As healthcare improved, life expectancy and photography developed, and families preferred pictures of the living, so demand for death photography diminished. Amy Cunningham, a funeral director in Brooklyn who specializes in green burials, states, the photograph seals the emotion, and with cellular phones ever present, we're going to be recording all kinds of things we never did previously. Death is just one of them. As in the Victorian era, postmortem photographs of children are provided by Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, an organization of volunteer photographers who make remembrance portraits of babies. 
often of the child in their parents' arms, to assist in the grieving process. It's about documenting the transition from a physical body to a memory, says photographer Oliver Wasso. People with terminal illnesses have long used photos and videos to bear witness to their suffering and make visible that which is considered off-limits, or ask family members and friends to do so on their behalf when they are no longer able to. These images are then shared on social media, often pushing visual and emotional boundaries well beyond what may be considered comfortable. For example, Bam Truesdale, 37, a hair and makeup stylist in Charlotte, North Carolina, has been preparing decedents for funeral parlors for 10 years. When his mother, Cynthia Cummings, died, he worked on her too. As is his habit with all the people he prepares, he put earphones in his mother's ears and played the gospel music that she preferred while he worked in silence. After Mr. Truesdale had made his mother up and done her hair, pinning a white feather and rhinestone fascinator to her curls, he smoothed her dress, adjusted her stockings, and picked her up, placing her gently in her coffin. He captured the entire process on his smartphone, then posted his dead mother's photos on Facebook. The link is in our show notes. His phone lit up with thousands of comments and notifications. By the end of the day, 25,000 people had liked the post and it had been shared by more than 15,000. His three siblings thanked him, too. They didn't know they wanted to see the pictures, he said, but they did. The aforementioned Dr. Stanley B. Burns stated, What's happening now is that people are taking back that process, but the impulse of photograph is the same as it was for the Victorians. They want to show they have seen their person through to the end, to be able to say, I've done this work. I've loved her to the end. It's your last bond. You want to document that. So, everything old is new again. Get comfortable with that. It doesn't have to be scary. Look on our website for the photos to prove it. You know, it's interesting, Charlie, is that there are so many times I take pictures with my kids and... They'll say, you can't post any of those until we approve them. Like they, they, they get prior approval before it goes out into the universe. And I'm sitting here, I'm listening to your thing. I'm thinking, well, what if, you know, it's a, not a flattering angle or, you know, it looks like I have a double chin and I have no control over saying, you can't post that picture. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a problem. <laughs> I guess it's only a problem for the living, but if, you know, you're dead or scattered to the four winds, well, you're never going to know. Well, see, there's that. There's that. We used to, in our family, we had an aunt who always took pictures of people in their coffins. Mm -hmm. And it was just... um, The people on, like, our side of the family, you know, she was from the other side, you know, she married into the family. Um, So the family, the nucleus family would be like, oh, God, there she goes again taking pictures. And then she'd, you know, like, get extra copies. So, like, when my dad died, she had extra copies of my dad in his his coffin. And, you know, we just were like, I guess my mother took the extra one. I don't know what she did. But, you know, like, 
really, nobody really wanted to look at those. Do you know if, uh, yeah, do you know if your family kept them or just tossed them out? Well, I'll tell you, when my mom died, it, you know, went through all her things and I didn't, Nothing there. Nothing there. I didn't okay. see them. Yeah. So I'm assuming, you know, I don't know what she did with it, but I didn't, I, I didn't see it. And I know that she, this aunt took pictures of, you know, our grandparents and everything when they died. So I don't know where those pictures are, Yeah. but, um, I'm not too sad that I don't yeah. have them. I, I guess, I guess just you know? too, with the advent of, uh, of iPhones and smartphones, you can, I mean, people just photograph everything. So, so even, oh, yeah. you know, like both, uh, you know, Dr. Burns and Amy were saying just about, it's just, it's just part of life now. Yeah. You mm-hmm. don't, you don't have to go out of your way to do it like the Victorians did. Um, it's just right. part of life now. And you didn't have to stand well, still. Yes, that too. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, my friend Tom sent me a, um, obituary and as a hospice nurse, I would, you know, spend, we only got the Sunday paper when I was working in hospice. Um, so I would, you know, Sundays I'd look in the obituaries and see who I knew right, yeah. and, you know, how long they lived. And I was kind of enjoyed reading obituaries in the sense of I nosy about people. I like reading about people. And up until now, my favorite one was one that was in a New Hampshire um, newspaper. And in it, they said, and he liked donuts. And I thought, well, that's good. I have this like broader picture of this man because, you know, he liked donuts. But Tom sent me this one that I was going to cut it, you know, and not make it so long. But I got to tell you, I, I couldn't. I just couldn't. I couldn't do it. So it said that a picture paints a thousand words. Well, in this obituary, the painting is of an incredible portrait. Uh, We produced a show about how to write an obituary, but we didn't include any of the ideas that the author of this obituary, Andy Karn, used. Um, And he, you know, he, I don't know how he decided he was going to go about writing his mother's obituary. So I sent this obituary to my daughters and I asked them to write mine in the same honest and loving way that Andy wrote his. And I got an eye roll (laughs) from them. So (laughs) I think in my family, an eye roll means, yeah, right. Um, Maybe we'll see. I don't know. So let me read to you about Renee Mandel Corin. This is from El Paso, Texas, and the headline is, A plus-size Jewish lady redneck died in El Paso on Saturday. Of itself, hardly news or good news if you're the type that subscribes to the notion that anybody not named you dying in El Paso, Texas is good news. In which case, have I got news for you. The body, fertile, Redhead matriarch of a sprawling Jewish-Mexican redneck American family has kicked it. That was not good news for Renee Mandelkorn's many surviving children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, many of whom she even knew and, in her own way, loved. Which will be, there will be much mourning in the many glamorous locales she went bankrupt in, McKeesport, Pennsylvania, Renee's birthplace, and where she first fell in love with ham and atheism. (laughs) Fayetteville and Kill Devil Hills, 
North Carolina, where Renee's dreams, credit rating, and marriage are all buried. And of course, Miami, Florida, where Renee's parents, uncles, aunts, and eternal hopes of all Miami Dolphin fans everywhere are all buried pretty deep. Renee was preceded in death by Don Shula. (laughs) Because she was my mother, the death of the good time gal Renee Corrin at the impossible old age of 84 is newsworthy to me. And I treat it with the same respect and reverence that she had for, well, nothing. A more disrespectful, trash-reading, talking, watching woman in North Carolina, Florida, or Texas was not to be found. Hers was an itinerant, much-loved life, a Yankee, Florida, liberal, Jewish, tough gal who bowled them in Japan, rolled them in North Carolina, and was a singularly unique parent. Often frustrated by the stifling conservative culture of the South, Renee turned her voracious mind to the home front, becoming a model stay-at-home parent, a supermom, really, just the perfect PTA lady, volunteer, amateur baker, and... (laughs) Just kidding, y'all. Renee, Rosie to her friends, was... And this was a broad who never met a stranger. Worked double shifts with Doreen ate a ton of carbs with Bernie, and will occasionally be stirred to stew some stuffed cabbage for the kids. She played cards like a shark, bowled and played cribbage like a pro, and laughed with the boys until the wee hours long after the last pin had dropped. At one point in the 1980s, Renee was the 11th or 12th ranking woman in cribbage in America, and while that could be a lie, it sounds great in print. She also told us that she came up with the name for Sunoco, and I choose to believe this too. Yeah, Renee lied a lot. But in the plus side, Renee didn't cook, she didn't clean, and she was lousy with money too. Here's what Renee was great at. Dyeing her red roots, weekly manicures, dirty jokes, pier fishing, rolling joints, and buying dirty magazines. She said she read them for the articles, but filthy free speech was really Renee's thing. Hers was a body, rowdy life, live large, broke, and loud. We thought Renee couldn't be killed. (laughs) Those people tried. A lot. Renee had been toying with death for decades, but always beating it and running off in her silver Chevy Nova. COVID couldn't kill Renee. Neither could pneumonia twice infections, blood clots, bad feet, breast cancer twice, two mastectomies, two recessions, multiple bankruptcies, uh, marriage to a philandering sergeant major, divorce in the 70s, six kids, one cesarean, a few abortions from the quietly famous abortionist in Spring Lake, North Carolina, or an affair with Larry King in the 60s. Renee was preceded in death by her ex-boyfriend, Larry King. Renee was also sadly preceded in death by her beloved daughter, Kathy Sue Corrin Lester Trammell Webster of Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina, who herself was preceded in death by two marriages, a fudge shop, and one eyeball lost in a near-fatal Pepsi-Cola incident that will absolutely be explored in future obituaries. Losing her one-eyed, bad-assed yacht of a daughter in 2007 devastated Renee. 
But it also made her quite homeless since Kathy pretty much picked up the tab. A talented and gregarious grifter, Renee M. Corrin eked out her final years of luxury. She literally retired at 62. Under the care, compassion, checking accounts, and evidently unlimited patient, patience of her favorite son and daughter-in-law, Michael and Lourdes Corrin, of the world-famous Cow Sanctuary in El Paso, Texas. Renee is also survived by her son, Jeffrey Corrin, and his endlessly towering tolerant wife, Shirley, of Powell's Point, North Carolina, Scott Corn, and what's left of his colon in Hampton, Virginia, Mark and Laura Corn, the loveliest earth farmers of Vernon, Texas. Seriously, where is that? And her favorite son, the gay one who writes catty obituaries in his spare time, Andy Corn of, obviously, New York City plus two beloved grand dogs, Mia and Hudson. Renee was particularly close to and grateful for the lavish attentions of her granddaughter, Perla, and her great-grandchildren, Elijah and Leroy, as well as her consistent cruise companions, Sam Trammell of Nor- Greenfield, North Carolina, and Adam Corrin of El Paso, Texas. Renee took tremendous pride in making one gay son and two gay grandchildren, Sam Trammell and Adam Korn. There will be a very disrespectful and totally non-denominational memorial on May 10th, 2022, most likely at a bowling alley in Fayetteville, North Carolina. The family requests absolutely zero privacy or propriety None whatsoever, and in fact encourages you to spend some government money today on a one-armed bandit at the blackjack table or on a cheap cruise to find our inheritance. We spent it all. She spent it all, folks. She left me nothing but these lousy memories, which I and my family of five brothers and my sister-in-laws, nephews, friends, nieces, neighbors, ex-boyfriends, Larry King's (laughs) children, who I guess I might be one of, the total strangers who all, to a person, loved and will cherish her forever. Please think of this brightly frocked, frivolous, funny, and smart Jewish redhead who is about to grift you, tell you a filthy joke, and for Larry King's sake, laugh. Bye, mummy. We loved you to bits. Isn't that That a great obit? obit, yes. I loved it. Don't you just have this, like, don't you feel like yes, you know absolutely. her? absolutely. It's just, I, I have no words. It's just, it's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Yes. It's wonderful. I, I hope my girls do as well. They have, they have somewhat <laughs> less to work with. <laughs> yeah, they can embellish a little here and there. But I still have time to go bankrupt and... I guess I'm not fertile, so I guess I can't get any abortions. But I, you know, I could probably do some other outrageous Absolutely. stuff. And I'll and I'll, and I'll back yeah. it up. Yes, your mother did. Yes, your mother did. Thanks. Oh my God, she told you about that. We swore we would take that to our graves. Well, I guess in a way she did. So yes. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we could do some outrageous things together again. <laughs> some more. <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 like Bing and Bob. Yes. So, <laughs> folks, that's it for this episode of Everyone Dies. 
the podcast. Stay tuned for the continuing saga, because like Rust, death never sleeps. This is Charlie Navarrete, and from Catherine Hepburn, life is hard. After all, it kills you. <laughs> and I'm Marianne Matzo, and we're going to see you next week. Remember to carefully choose who is going to write your story. And remember, every day is a gift. This podcast does not provide medical advice. All discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.